it's a reference to something about like Chinese. Um, I, no I think it's a reference to like Chinese Benoit balls, Chinese propaganda. <laughs> Let me say that again because I'm going to have to edit out the Benoit balls. <laughs> Why? They're fun. <laughs> Chinese Benoit balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to pull that. <laughs> this is the Epic New Podcast. Two idiots and a list. Where you're going to get two idiots and a list. And now, coming to you live from Circle Avenue Studios, your hosts, Nick Vasolo and Kirik McMillan. I feel like I should start this in a different way, like with a stupid voice or something. <laughs> got a Kermit the Frog rolling around there? <laughs> Even just like a Chicago accent. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, no, Who Idiots in the List. <laughs> This is the list, and that's the idiot. I'm looking over at your dub bear's pillow on your couch. <laughs> How about like Monty Python? A little idiot. Oh, welcome to Two Idiots on the List. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Let's say hello to Aruba, Trinidad, and Tobago, China, and Andorra. Andorra is my favorite country of all time. I had to look this up. Nobody knows where it is. No, I do. <laughs> I did not. It's in the Pyrenees. It is. The smallest European country besides the Vatican. It's got a population of 77,000. And at least one of them has listened to us. And they are on the Iberian Peninsula. That's a little bar trick you can use. Name the countries on the Iberian Peninsula. You'll win drinks. <laughs> you just made it move a little bit. Coming up, what is the frequency, Kenneth? We're talking about REM. Yeah, this is a band that surprisingly, from our Facebook page and a lot of other our social media outlets, like a lot of people have been requesting this. And this is kind of one of those ones that you and I both talked about. And we're like, I don't know, should we do it? And I'm like, well, enough people out there are kind of like clamoring for it. So I'm like, let's dig into it. This one surprised me a little bit. What is your relationship with this band? I, I was going to ask you the same thing. I wasn't the biggest REM cheerleader when these guys were in the height of their popularity in the late 80s and early 90s. And I had to kind of dig through and figure out why. And I think they were, to some degree, a victim of circumstance. You know, coming out of high school, I was still transitioning out of the stuff that I was listening to back then. Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Rush... And my music tastes were diverging. One half of me was headed towards the trippy, Doors, the Grateful Dead, Almond Brothers, Little Feet. And then the other half of me was moving rather rapidly into the grunge that we were all moving into. Right. And Jane's Addiction and Gish, you know, they, those hit me freshman year and, and I couldn't get enough of either of them. REM just didn't really fall into either of those. No. And I think that they fell some some victim to that. And they had some other things that I think were working against them as well. There yeah. was something that seemed a little too self-important about them. I compare their self-importance. I don't know how familiar you are with Arcade Fire, yeah. the big Canadian band. Mm -hmm. Those guys are kind of in that same boat of self-importance. Every lyric is saving the world. Every word. Not just the world, but the universe. <laughs> R.E.M. kind of had that feel to it a little bit. Okay. They were badly overplayed, which makes sense considering the contracts they signed for yes. record deals, which Big ones. were record-setting record contracts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hearing a whole lot of positives. So <laughs> this was this was the process I went through yeah, to no, figure no, no, out no. why yeah, they sure. weren't bigger for me. Yeah. 
However, as I listened to the catalog, I bet I had 20 songs that were contenders for at least the bottom end of the list. I think my top four... My top four fell into place really solidly and very quickly. All right, so let me stop you there. Let me let me kind of because it's it's interesting that, that what you just said is kind of like the process that I went through. So like, there's these bands like you know Tom Petty we just did, ACDC, Foreigner. They were always around. They were like water for us. Yeah, they're not going to hurt you. For some reason, it seems like you need them because they're always around. Right. There's no distinguishable taste. And then we had like, you know, we grew up in high school together and we had like our Miller Lite bands, you know, Def Leppard. We had a Rush, you know, we could jam out to Rush sometimes. Uh, we had our Motley Crue's, our GNR's, you know, you could just drink that shit all day long and really not feel the effects of it. And, you know, maybe at the end of the day, you were a little woozy because, you know, you, you know, kind of overfilled. But like that was kind of like, that's your comfort. Right. Right. And then as we kind of grew up and grew a little bit over, you know. There were all those wine bands. Like, it's a little bit more quote-unquote sophisticated taste. There's different type. Like, I'm talking about, like, your Led Zeppelins, your Stones, your Beatles. Like, if you're in the mood for, a, like, a meaty red, you know, you can go to Zeppelin's, you know, physical graffiti. Sure. Something a little headier. Right. If you're looking for, like, a like a Pinot Noir, you know, you're looking for something a little light <laughs> red, you know, you can go into, like, Beatles, you know, Revolver. R.E.M. to me was always, like, you know, your second Manhattan on a Wednesday night. Right before a big proposal. Like, that's a fucking adult drink. And to me, like, and I was always attracted to REM from from way back. You know, the Radio Free Europe, to me, hit me right around when I was 14. You couldn't really hear the song a lot because it played a lot on college radio. It wasn't mainstream right. necessarily. But I had, you know, we have a friend who is much o- who has a, a much older um, brother uh, who was in college when I was in grade school. And that's kind of the first time I heard it coming out of his, you know, bedroom or when he would play basketball out on court. He was like, oh, this is college. This is different. This is different than Foreigner. This is different right. than other things. Right. And then in 1980, I guess it was the summer of 88, I spent a lot of time with a, with a, with a young lady who was just a little bit older than me for di- different circumstances. It was a platonic relationship, but I just happened to, you know, have, have the occasion to spend a lot of time with this girl. And she had, she, she was one of those friends that had like the, like the eclectic tastes. Like she was just a little, you know, she was listening to Oingo Boingo. You know, she was looking at S- Echo and the Bunny Man. She had those, those, those cassettes in her car and REM, document was one of those tapes and i just you know I, it was weird because i listened to document i'm like i remember this album and i listened to the whole thing and it just instantly zapped me back into her like you know red convertible cabriolet like we would drive around <laughs> on in the in the summer of 88 and i you know that's i i've always liked these guys i've always liked these guys yeah. I, their criticisms are well taken though overplayed they're, yes yeah, their their worst songs are overplayed and i think that i missed out on rem because of the reasons that i gave and and the reasons of the divergence of taste and why i didn't have room for three avenues of music back then i don't know right but for whatever reason rem just was not included in that interestingly as i as i cataloged their songs for my notes here and and determined what my list was going to be they actually fell into into three different kind of buckets. You know, I had my my top list. I had a few that I really didn't like. And then I had another section that I sort of labeled as good, but badly overplayed. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll get, we'll get around to that. Sure. REM was always like, it's the original American alternative band. They're the first ones, you know, they were, uh, they, they, they get lumped into grunge, and they're just not. Oh God, they're, no. they're not a grunge band. No, um, even though Kurt Cobain said that REM was his favorite band of all time. Yeah, and Tom York said that uh, Michael Stipe was the biggest influence mm-hmm. on Radiohead's sound. I can see that. REM has always been outside the mainstream of music, the, the cool part of music, and then all of a sudden, they, and they were very reluctant to go out and promote. They didn't want to become right. like you know. I guess the term that they would use back then would be a sellout. And then their, their, the rest of their career after when they really popped off of, you know, whether it was Document or Green or certainly out of time, like their entire careers were then trying to get back to the outside. They didn't want to be part of the mainstream of music. And I think that's probably where you come in with your criticism of Stipe. He just seems to be like, I don't know, 
a little bit too preachy, a little bit too, you know, doesn't right. take it seriously enough. And I don't see it that way. I see it as a person who is like, he didn't want to be famous for probably a specific reasons. Like he's not comfortable in the spotlight. Right. Maybe. And, you know, when, when I thought of REM prior to this, I thought of them as like a protest band or a band with a cause. Yeah. And I'm not sure why I felt that way. Maybe it's because of, you know, some of their songs have, have, you know, some specific meaning to it. I really can't tell you that there was a specific thing that in my head said these guys are a protest band or a, you know, a band with a cause or a political band. They weren't. And they didn't want to be. In fact, the guitarist, Peter Buck, said, I don't like sloganeering. Mm -hmm. And then he said, especially when it comes to The Clash, who don't know what they're talking about, they're fucking boneheads. People think it's revolutionary and it's garbage. Yeah, I read that too. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a... Peter Buck yeah. throwing 105 miles an hour past, <laughs> right past your chin. <laughs> right. He also said he's like, uh, he was responding to, to maybe somebody's criticism about, you know, the hair metal bands of the day. And he says, that's just sickening. This is him speaking now. I'm not saying you have to make social messages, but the Motley Crue and the Van Halens, they have a tool to, to talk to every disenfranchised lower middle kid who works in the garage and tell them something about what's happening to them. But all they tell them is go ahead and jump. <laughs> a lot of these bands make it on rebellion. This is the best part. A lot of these bands make it on rebellion. All kids raise their hands in the air and they yell and they drink a bunch of malt liquor for about three hours and then they go right back home and go to the mall. And that dovetails into his criticism of the clash. It's like, that's not revolutionary. It's safe. Right. Right. I love it. Yeah. I did not know that Peter Buck was a flamethrower like that, but <laughs> he has something there. Yeah, he's tossing shade all over the place, <laughs> and, he, and he does it well. There was another thing that I thought of with this band, and this isn't a criticism. It was just a sort of an observation. You know, if you walked through a residence hall in the 90s, in the early 90s, at a at a college dorm or a frat house or a sorority house mm -hmm. or, or apartment complex, you heard REM during the day. You didn't hear it at night. Nobody tuned up to REM. That's a good point. And I don't know that that's good or bad. <laughs> that's a good point. I don't know that that's good or bad. There may be one of their songs, but you're right. Like, we're not dancing around to the one I love. No, no. And I agree. <laughs> there was, there was a handful of- That's not of, the pre-party. Right. That's not the pre-game. I, uh, I think I started with Tom Petty, so why don't we begin REM okay. with you? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll do a uh, my uh, my my honorable mention for these guys is off of the document album um, that was kind of like my entry point to them, and uh, I've always liked the song "Finest Work Song." And it really kind of starts out like you went back to like they're not a protest song. They do have messages in their song. You know, like this one starts out. It's like the time to rise has been engaged. And I'm like, I'm I'm here. I'm 15. And I'm listening to what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's Mills that does the backing harmony. Yes. Yeah. And, so. and he does it well. Very well. I always thought it was Buck, but no. I no, was, it's, yeah, it's, it's Mills. Mills. Yeah, his harmonies on this song in particular are really good. I yeah. like it. I think it really carries the song. This is my number three. Oh, shit. Yeah. No, that's that's fine. Let's let's hit it. I'm with you. And when I heard it, I was like, I totally forgot about this song. Right. I totally forgot yeah. about it. And it was good. Like I really liked it. I and, and I've been playing it, you know, kind of here and there since I heard it again. I, I really like it. The the melody of the song fits Stipe's vocals perfectly. Yep. And Mills compliments that. It's it's really simple. It's just a B. They just keep playing a B note over and over and yeah. over until they get to the chorus. But it doesn't get boring. The way that they fill it out and, and his vocals over it, they, they work really well. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like this song. And it's in, I, this, is this the first track off of that album? I can't I remember. Don't know. It's up in the, in the list. And I was like, that was one of the songs I was like, man, I remember this whole album. And it's that I remember these are, these are good times. Yeah, yeah. The groove is driven entirely by the bass drum. Yep. 
when you can pick that out of a song like that yeah. and go, something is making me move here. What is it? And it typically is a combination of the drums and the bass. Right. In this case, it's really just the bass drum is moving this song along. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good example of, like, you know, them at their best, I think. Yeah, I agree. All right, my honorable mention, and you've already mentioned it, is Radio Free Europe. Yeah, this is my number five. Good early post-punk sound. This was the first song off of their first album, Murmur. Great album, by the way. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah. It's got a super clean sound. Nothing is overdone. Everything is balanced. There are no guitar solos right. in the entire album. Yeah, this is 1983. I think I read something that said they intentionally didn't put Guitar Hero-style solos in there, and I'm not sure that he was a Guitar Hero kind of guitarist anyhow. No. But, <laughs> Definitively. <laughs> right. Uh, but they intentionally didn't put any of those in here because they didn't want the album to sound dated at some point afterwards. Mm. And... I, I like it a lot. This song, the the bass drives the song, and it's fairly simple, repeating notes in the verses. But then he does a run up and run down in the bridges. Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of this song, and I'm a big fan of that sound that they have. I usually don't like like repeating choruses to end a song like ad nauseum. Right. This song does it, and every time they do the repeating chorus, they change it just a little bit of it, and a lot of the harmonies are changed into, and it's like it keeps you engaged to the end of the song. And like when it's over, it's like, oh shit, I want to hear that again. Yeah. Like, it's it's a song that's almost tireless. Yeah. Like I could listen to this song, you know, on on you know on repeat almost. It's really a great song. It's great tune. Yeah. Number. 389 on Rolling Stone's Greatest Songs of All Time. And it's this type of song that R.E.M. would make that's kind of like, they are college radio. Mm-hmm. This song is emblematic of that. Yeah, it's definitive This was of it. blaring out of every college dorm room in 1984. I'm sure. You know, and it was, and, and that's what I, that's the kind of groove that I get from it when I listen to it. I'm like, I remember those days. I mean, yeah. I was in college then, but I do remember like that feel like risky business type sure. thing. Sure, <laughs> you know, sure. Feel. All right, what you got for number five? That was my number five. That was your number yeah. five. Yeah, for sure. And that was, you know, it was um, their first single in 81. It didn't, you know, they didn't have an album press until 83. So again, they're they're, they're just living in college radio and, and around the local bars where they're playing in Atlanta or Athens or wherever they're, you know, mm-hmm. south there. So it's not like, like, if you knew about REM in 83... And you didn't live in southwestern United States or southeastern United States, like you were probably in college. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you probably had a hip college DJ that was in tune to that shit because it was hard to come by. Right. You know. All right, I sniped your number five, so my number five is Texarkana. Another one of those songs that I heard and went, I forgot about this song. Mills wrote the song, Mike Mills, the bass player. Michael Stipe had a hard time finding or writing lyrics that would fit the song, and so Mike Mills wrote those as well. And because of that, he ended up singing it. And it works. And I don't know that Mike Mills has a particularly melodic voice, but I liked what he did on this song, and I thought it fit well. Yeah, he's really good with the, the, the backing harmonies. When Stipe comes in, because Stipe adds texture to the song by either adding backing vocals or later in the song he kind of comes in and, and sings a few notes on his own. It brings you back to this sort of familiarity, and you're you're like, 
Oh, there, there it is. There's R.E.M. Mm-hmm. Because you're just so used to hearing his voice. I, I really like it. Mike Mills is, I believe, I didn't look this up, but my ear tells me that he is picking the bass line versus playing it with his fingers. And that gives it a brightness to it that makes it kind of pop. I I really like this song. You're the expert. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) All right, what you got for number four? My number four was uh, off the Monster album in 94, um, and it is What's the Frequency, Kenneth? I've always dug this song. The very first time I heard it, I was like, "Whoa, shit! There's REM. They're coming after you." Like this, they don't typically sound, start the songs off the way this song goes. I like Stipe's vocal styling in this song, and uh, the shimmering guitar effect that he has, uh, that Buck has on his guitars, I think is a really cool effect that I don't recall hearing in too many other songs of that era before since, actually. Right. In the song is a quote from Richard Linkletter, who's the um, one of my favorite directors, and he directed Slacker. The, the quote is, uh, With, uh, withdrawal in disgust is not the same thing as apathy. I always like that. Mm-hmm. And this whole song is about, you know, the basic fuck-it-all attitude of the 90s. Like, you know, there was, you know, they just came out and, you know, kind of like wrote a song about, this is you guys. Here's the mirror. Take, take a look. Right. And it's about a, a person that's trying to, like, you know, emulate that kind of you know, I guess attitude and not doing it very well, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> I like that song. I always thought that had kind of a, a unique groove to it. The vocal of What's the Frequency, Kenneth, is just, there's something kind of funny about it. Yeah. And it works. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a cool song. I, I like I like the, the, just the whole overall design of the song and the sound design of the song is, is really cool. I and like it. He's got kind of a heavy distortion on his guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's that shimmery mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. All right, then that brings me to my number four, and my number four is The Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. This is off of Automatic for the People. It's kind of a quirky song. According to the website Song Facts, R.E.M. paid for the rights to use The Lion Sleeps Tonight of Lion King fame. And the vocals at the very beginning that opened the song kind of mimic that. This song's kind of weird. It's like, you know, he's trying to ram a lot of words into the chorus phrasing, and he's doing so intentionally. He says it so fast, it sounds a little like calling Jamaica, but what he's actually saying is, call me when you try to wake her up. The rest of the lyrics in this song are weird. The first verse is about calling someone on a payphone because they don't have access to their own phone. And then he says, tell her to kiss my ass so she knows it's me. And then he's on to (laughs) singing about instant soup and canned beans and Dr. Seuss. Nobody understands R.E.M.'s lyrics. Oh, it's way out there. It's (laughs) way out there. And and it just didn't... I liked the sound of it. I liked the way the song goes. The song makes absolutely no sense. And Peter Buck said the song was intended to break the mood of the album Automatic for the People because it was a pretty heavy subject matter on the rest of the album. So they put it on there to kind of give you a little bit of an emotional break, I guess. Right. Mike talks about like the first part of the verse, you know, where they're calling him on a payphone and saying, you know, it's someone that doesn't have a home. And then he said the second half of the song, I have no idea what it's about. Like, yeah. Even even Stipe says like sometimes even I forget the lyrics of my songs. Oh yeah, and, and he says and it makes no difference in the live performance. Yeah, so he was like you know back in ninety in eighty seven he gave a New York Times uh, interview and he said it's like I've never felt the responsibility to write every song so that it makes perfect sense from beginning to end, and that comes out sure, yeah. quite clearly. <laughs> right. All right. What's your number three? 
number three is off of that automatic for the people album and this is a, a song that was you know I, we were going we were talking about you know REM, rem always sitting out outside the mainstream not with their nose in the air like the, you know with some sort of diffidence it's just like they were on the outside and they were comfortable being on the outside and like people went and discovered them and dragged them into the mainstream. The proof is this song here. Like the the Man in the Moon shouldn't be a hit song, right? But it was. It was. And I love it. I think it's great. It's a great song. I love his Elvis impersonation yes. that he does. This is obviously, you know, a, a nod to his, you know, one who he says is a big influence on him. Andy Kaufman, the comedian, some a, a bit eccentric comedian. Sure. And, you know, his his Mighty Mouse routine he did at SNL, I think is one of the funniest things. But, yeah, this is a nod to, you know, Andy Kaufman. And I just think that... This is one of those songs that does have lyrics that you can follow. Yes. does make sense. I really love the, the, everything about the verse. Um, and, and the chorus is just one of those really great REM choruses. Yeah. This was one that when I heard it, I could easily sing along to. Yeah. You know, and, it, and you almost are forced to because it's that catchy. <laughs> yeah, right. As you mentioned, the song is a tribute to Andy Kaufman. The title refers to conspiracy theories around the moon landing and that it was faked and there were similar conspiracy theories circulating about Kaufman's death that he wasn't actually dead right and so that's where the he's a pro wrestler somewhere (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's where the song title came from I I like this it did fall into that category of good but overplayed yeah it didn't stop me that didn't yeah that didn't that's not a slam against the song itself it's not Mm -hmm. their fault it got overplayed right and i like the yeah 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 yes that he does that's a that's a nod to kurt cobain they had a personal relationship outside of music I think that they both influenced each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like knowing that bit of it, that those two people who are seemingly were on the polar opposites of music were so close as, you know, as personal friends. Yeah. Uh, from what I gather. It's kind of testament to both of their characters. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so a little bit distant, but, you know, in the public eye. But, right. You know, can, you know, certainly be, you know, part of that closeness in a, in a relationship, whether they were because they were just front men's or because they just had mutual respect for one another. I thought it was cool. Yeah, going back on that, I have to say, the conspiracy theories about the moon landing, I, I won't go too much into this, because I have students all the time come up to me, and they, they're, they're just getting into conspiracy theories, and they're like, what do you think about landing on the moon? I said, listen, it is such an offensive thing to say that that was staged somehow. Right, right. So stop yourself, right? Go, go on to a different conspiracy, okay? Like frogs rain from the sky and make you gay. Whatever it is, <laughs> but leave that one alone, please. <laughs> Unreal. Oh, goodness. <laughs> All right, you sniped my number three, which was Finest Work Song, so that brings us to... Ah, my favorite part of the show. <laughs> the fantasy concert I love lineup. It. I've got something special for you, my friend. All right, hit me. Do you want to go first? Because mine is uh, I can Super do that. Pound Cake. I can, <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. I, as I approached this part of, of my planning for the show, I think I wrote down 10 or 12 bands that I thought would be potential suitors okay. for this kind of a this kind of a concert. I boiled it down to two. The two that I've got are Edie Brickell, and she's only going to play one song because that's all she has. <laughs> oh, wow. Is ranked number twenty-three on VH1's list of one-hit wonders. No way. Yeah. No fucking oh, there's way. There's a killer wah-wah guitar solo no. in this song. <laughs> no, that's some guy who just who just was gifted a wah-wah pedal for his birthday. <laughs> it was like, hey guys, look what I can do. And I'm, 
<laughs> you might as well just get him a squawk box, too. God. Wow. Man, I hope I'm in the pisser when that thing comes on. <laughs> and then we're going to follow that up. And this one, when I thought of them, I went, of course, the style of music is almost duplicate. The Smiths. Yeah. some Morrissey the sound of their of their music the way they write the way he sings the, the everything about the styles of both of those bands are completely intertwined yeah absolutely I've got one of those bands in the in my lineup too okay that's cool you done yep. you got that's Edie yeah. Brickell you're going with that well if all right so <laughs> you, put that, you want to dip back into the, the, the set list into the list Here's the other one that I'll I was... Give, I'll give you Edie Brickell one song because I've got one of those bands too. Okay. All right, so you can just, just pick off your list there. Well, all right, so the, the what who Edie Brickell was wrestling with was both 10,000 Maniacs... Yeah, and, and so I pulled them off and Echo and the Bunnymen. I thought Echo and the Bunnymen would be a good fit for this, too. Yeah. Is that Lips Like Sugar? Yes. Love that song. (laughs) That guy's voice booming. Yeah. Cool, man. All right, who you got? Okay. R.E.M., we're going to have them come up. And then I think that we're going to open up this show with a, uh, a little bit of Matthew Sweet. Nice. Sick of myself. Love that too. Yeah. Great. And, and I'm, as I'm doing my little bit of research here, Sweet and uh, REM shared a producer for a time being. Okay. So, you know, obviously the same similar sounds sure. can come out and everything like that. But I like Matthew Sweet. Very he, complimentary to REM. He, he should have had a bigger career. Yeah. Yeah. With all this shit that was swimming around his part of the pool during that era, like the Delamitris of the world <laughs> and the Jim Blossoms of the world, like Matthew Sweet really should have had a better. Right. Better go at it. Delamitri. Mm-hmm. Scottish band, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> the only hit that I know, I don't even know the title of it. I just, whenever it comes on, I say, oh, this is the Bitch Bastard song. <laughs> I think it's last to know. Because yes. the song is like, you're a bitch because you cheated on me. And then he finally, at the last verse, he you know he says, like, oh, I cheated on you first. I'm right. like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the bitch bastard song. <laughs> and then I want Depeche Mode.
I really like these guys. Depeche Mode's great. Yeah, that's the, there's people out there that just recoil when you say Depeche Mode. Douche they, Mode, I yeah, guess the common like, name know, oh, for It's yeah. so preachy. I'm like, you listen to the fucking songs at all? Oh, great. Like, everything counts? Love it. Give me the Depeche Mode. And then for one set, and, and the whole place can clear out because they will, nobody but you will know this this band. Oh my this gosh, too. I'm predicting it already. <laughs> and I want to bring out, I'm going to find these people because there's some, they're probably doing <laughs> yard work for cheap somewhere. But I'm going to find these people to come out and do their one song, Last Playing Out. That's Toy Matinee. Yes. Give them a little. <laughs> love this song i don't know how you found this band i don't know how you found this band where you found this band or what else they did i think you loaned me your copy of the cd yeah, which you had it for like a year and a half <laughs> which by the way i think is worth like 40 or 50 bucks uh, i think it's a little bit more but yeah i can't imagine why <laughs> like, i wondered what episode you were going to work Toy Matinee into. This is it, baby. Here we go. This is it. All right, folks, you have been gifted the present. Hey, and I just listen to that song, it holds up. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's a great tune. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm happy with myself. I, I like that. I like that. What is your number two? Oh, yeah. Okay. So number two is off of Automatic for the People. Now, R.E.M. has some really good songs, really beautiful songs that are uh, lower or slower tempo. Really kind of have, uh, you know, either sweet messages or really, really important messages. Uh, the, the one song I'd landed on was Night Swimming. I don't know, but this this song is just such a great groove, mood. There was something about this song. It's like, say, like I'm a sucker for piano songs too, like like lower slower tempo piano songs. But there's always something about this song that I was like, wow, that's there's just a different tonal quality to this song. The piano that is recorded is the exact same piano that Jim Gordon and Bobby Whitlock played the famous Layla tune. Oh wow! On, and as soon as you know that. You can't unhear that tonal quality. And you're like, oh, fuck. That's like Billy Corgan's Strat. Sure. Like, it's a specific instrument. Right. It's right. really cool. It's neat. And I just love that song. I don't know that song. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. Like you're just, I've got notes here. No, on like all kinds of songs. It's I'm like, what? It would never have made, like, mainstream radio. But that's weird to say because R.E.M. songs, like, some of the songs that made mainstream, like MTV and stuff like that, it's like, how, how is this... It must be being played be- only because R.E.M. now are superstars. Night Swimming wasn't one of those songs. But I think like like Drive, Everybody Hurts, those songs aren't poppy songs. No. Like Everybody Hurts is, was, was going to be the number two. It's a really, really important message and it's a beautiful song. But like Night Swimming is, is kind of like that same vein of R.E.M. songs. Of like, And I think what you got from radio, both mainstream and college, was... You got REM songs that were not perhaps slated to be a widespread release. Right. All right, my number two is off of Life's Rich Pageant, and the song is Fall On Me. Uh, 
I love this song. I haven't been able to kind of stop singing it in my head since I heard it last week. And it's just really infectious. The way it's sung, the way it's played, the, the what he's singing about. I looked on Wikipedia for this and it said the song is about acid rain. And then later in the same Wikipedia entry, they quote Michael Stipe saying, this song is not about acid rain. That's why Wikipedia is not... <laughs> A source of information. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I try to get my info from a wide variety of sources. And, How dare you. Yeah. The jangly guitar in this song and, and the way the snare doubles up during the chorus gives it a very 60s kind of vibe. I'm a fan of that chorus. Stipe says the song isn't about acid rain and pollution. It's about things that can crush us. Sure, you could put acid rain in that category. Well, in 86, also, you could put Skylab. Try, right, yeah, right. Yeah, there's a... I, I really like this song. There's something about it that just really... It makes me feel good. And I don't know that I can put much on it other than that. No, but I like it. It, it makes me feel good. It's short, too. It fits your Spanish peanut attention span. You got to listen to Tom Petty to understand that reference. Uh, but it's only two minutes, 50 seconds long. It's quick. All right. That brings us to our number ones. What do you have at number one? I've always loved this song. I, I will never tire of listening to this song. I have such a connection to this song, and I, I think there are reasons why we can get into. It's off of document, and it's the end of the world as we know it. This is the best version of these types of songs. We talked about Tom Petty's Jam and Me. You know, they're they're all emulating Bob Dylan's subterranean homesick blues in this. This is the best of those songs. Okay. I love it. I love everything about it. In my college, so we lived in a townhome in col- in, in, when I was in college. I remember that. And uh, the basement yes. where it was just... It was just a black and black wall basements for drinking. That was just all that was there. That's for. all we used it for. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to have like study groups down there. We walked out like yeah. And uh, one of my uh, one of my roommates was an art major, and he went down there and spruced up the joint a bit. And part of you know part of the wall, he wrote down all of the lyrics to "It's the End of the World as We Know It." Like whenever that song would come on, this would be that one song, one REM song that you would hear at night during parties, because it's it's very anthemic and you know it's just awesome. I love it. I challenge anybody to sing this song verbatim. With accuracy. That's why he wrote the lyrics down right. <laughs> yeah, on, the, on, the, on the wall. There's a lot in that song, for sure. I mean, he, he really, and it's it's very stream of consciousness. It kind of personified Stipe's mumble. You know, he's that's one of the criticisms you'll see over and over again with him. Yeah. It was a really popular song. Man, did this get airtime. It did. It got a lot of airtime. Weirdly enough, I just didn't, I never tired of it. <laughs> I, I, for, for whatever reason, it's very, it's a complex sounding song but it's very simple right when they slow down at the end and we do the i feel i think it's a, a the musical mechanism is it was is it a canon where they start two things but they end at the same point or anything sure it's, but it, like michael stipe goes on with the lyrics and uh, i think it's mills that does the the chorus and they end at the same point they continue to do that right and then they just crash out on this big you know ending for the song and at that point, so 87 is when the song comes out. I get a hold of it in 88. This is college area for us, end of end of high school into college. Um, that song has been with us ever since. And it's just, you know, when you're going through those times, it's the end of the world as we know it. And that's your anthem? <laughs> that says a lot about your generation. <laughs> this song was included on that same Clear Channel list of songs that shouldn't be played after 9-11 that I referenced in our Alice in Chains episode. Oh. That list, I actually found the list. It's huge. And they basically banned, and they didn't ban it. It was more of a, we don't think you should play this to their station directors and stuff. 
and the list is basically every song that references fire or end of the world Nuclear or war. or war right. or anything like that. Also included in that Clear Channel list of songs. Oh, it's Clear Channel. Well. <laughs> right, it's Clear Channel. Included in that list was Rage Against the Machines' entire catalog. Of course. All 49 of them. <laughs> Wouldn't want any truth coming out. <laughs> yeah, that's this this song, again, it's, it's an anthem for our generation. It really is, whether people kind of realize it or not. The, the folks that are our age... That is an instantly identifiable song. Everybody knows the chorus. And we sing it like, like it's singing like, you know, not, I don't want to say cheerful. Like, like one of the best parts of the song for me is this, this droning harmony at the end of the song where it's kind of like Mills is kind of like, you know, it's the end of the world. Right. As we know. And, you know, he's just droning that on and then it crashes out. It's really powerful. He's like, you know, what do you say about a generation that was taught that sex was death and <laughs> rain meant acid? Right, right. <laughs> you get kind of this. Right. All right. That brings me to my number one. And you've already mentioned it. And this one was pretty clear to me uh, when I was going through and creating my list. And that was Everybody Hurts. The message here is obvious and clear, and that was done so very intentionally. Peter Buck said the reason the lyrics are so straightforward, which is so uncharacteristic of R.E.M.'s music, is because the song is targeted at teenagers. Yep. And they want you to hear what they're saying. They want you to understand that there are better outs than the outcome of suicide, which is what the whole song is about. The simplicity of the music really complements the message. The strings, they add a lot of dimension. And I saw something that said John Paul Jones did the arrangement for the strings. I don't know if that's 100% accurate. I know accurate. he worked with them. Okay. Yeah. That may fall under the internet detritus category. <laughs> this is R.E.M.'s second most played song on Spotify at 280 million. What do you think number one is? You mentioned it earlier. It could be the one I love. Losing my religion. Losing my religion. At eight hundred million. That's that's shocking that that this song is number two for them. I thought so too. I thought it. I, I was surprised. I thought that may be number one. Yeah. His lyrics are great. Everybody hurts. Take comfort in your friends. Don't throw your hand. It's so clear. Yep. It's so clear. And I think that this spoke to me at certain times in my life. Not that I was at necessarily this point right. of darkness, but even if you're not at that point in darkness, the message is still reach out, find people. Absolutely. Get help, yes. even if it's just someone to chat with. Life is going to kick the ever-loving shit out of you from yes. time to time. Yeah. And you are going to be low, baby, low. Right. You can't do this alone. Yeah, 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 and that's that's so uh, such a beautiful song in that way because, as you mentioned before, it's so direct in their lyrics, which is unique for songs. Yes, you know, lyricists kind of like you know they like to play around with words, sure. and they like to cloak their double entendres yeah. and and whatnot. There's no, none of that in here. This is such an important song for them. For it, it, I really like knowing that this song exists in the world. I agree. It's unfortunate that people aren't kind of directed to it more. <laughs> right. Because it is so simple. It's like, hey, man, you are going to get the shit kicked out of you sometimes. Hang on. Hang on. Yeah. Hang on. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. reach out for people. Oh, it's, re it's really good. And, and like I said, this was this was one that when I heard it, I went, of course. For yeah. me, this is my yeah. number one. I think it's an important song. Yeah. And you can't say that about a lot of music pop or otherwise oh i agree with you you know it's an important song it really is and, and uh I'm, I'm glad that you put it on the list because i did i, I it was going to be my number two and it was like i'm glad that it's on your list because you're right it's it's really important right okay what's your most hated okay well let's get down to the low-hanging fruit okay <laughs> the low-hanging fruit of this band is for sure shiny happy people <laughs> 
Okay, and now even Michael Stipe agrees with me. He refuses to play that song. It was written as a joke. It's a, it's like a reference to Chinese propaganda in some way. I, I, it's a, All it's right. a goofy song. It's the first off. It's the B-52s chick. I like Kate Pearson. No. Really? I can't. Come on. Can't. I don't know that I love her in and this. I mean, it's it's a it's a vocal addition to the song. She's from the same city in Georgia that these guys are from. She's from Athens. Yes, I can't do that. Well, you see, a great. I don't want that in my life. Just like you know, I'm glad that everybody hurts us in the world. I'm so sad that that song. Whatever. What's the uh, not shiny happy people? The other B52 song. The Love Shack. Love Shack. Oh, oh, oh my God. Here's a sliding door moment for you. The original theme for Friends was this fucking song. Yes. I gotta tell you, I'm watching, I, I watched the premiere of Friends, obviously because it was, it was tucked into uh, Seinfeld. I didn't mind the, the replacements. Replacements. If Shiny Happy no, People. No, no, the Rembrandts. Or the Rembrandts, right. If Shiny Happy People comes on, I'm turning the TV off and I never watch an episode <laughs> of Friends ever. I saw the same fact and I was like, what? I mean, Shiny Happy People? Now, Hollywood doesn't get a lot of things right a lot of the time. Somebody got it right. Somebody said, we can't do this to our audience every fucking week. No. Holy uh, shit. That's funny. I had I had a few swimming around oh, here. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. I had a few swimming around there's here. There's a lot here. Superman. It's actually a cover to Superman. Is it? It was recorded in 1969 by a band called The Click. The original is even more annoying. really bad i can only imagine <laughs> and then i also had stand oh yep right here Another one written as a goof. And it's really just the annoyance of how he says stand and the subsequent vocals behind that. However, I did have one that floated to the top and it floated quickly. And you may wonder why I didn't engage you on your number one as much as I did. (laughs) I had a feeling. It's the end of the world as we know it. That song bugged the shit out of me. I hate the snare drum that starts it and then Stipe jumps in and he just drives himself right under my skin. (laughs) (laughs) It was far too popular at college parties. I can picture people dancing to it the way Ali Sheedy dances in Breakfast Club. Yeah. And it just... It's really the only way to dance to that song. Yeah. And of course, nobody knew any of the fucking lyrics because it's such a mumble. They knew Leonard Bernstein. Until they got to Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. Everyone stopped and shouted it out. When that song started, they'd go, oh, piss break time. I'm out of here. I'm going to go take a leak. So that you you were always never there when we were reading the lyrics off the wall. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you stop anybody in that party, it's like Leonard Bernstein. Who is he? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> no. You don't know. No. Yeah, that one. That one. Uh, that one won the award for me. All right. What are your coolest four seconds? I think the coolest four seconds for me are the the use of the bullhorn in Radio Free Europe chorus. When Stipe pulls out the bullhorn, I, the, the first time I heard that, I was like, you can do that in a song? That's pretty fucking cool. And every time it's been used in a song, I'm like, well, I, I like that. Well, and what's his face Steve from... Bono does it. Stone Temple Pilots did it all the time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. I like it. I like that effect. Yeah. 
I have the intro to Old Man Kenzie, which is a song off of Fables of Reconstruction. There's just a groovy bass riff with a warble effect on there that I liked. Did you read about the recording of Fables of Reconstruction? No. So it's 18, 1985. It's right after Murmur and Reckoning. And so they're into their third album and they, they decide, well, we're going to go to Europe and we're going to do the Europe thing and we're going to record in Europe. And they, they recorded in Northern England in the wintertime. And they fucking hated it. They hated <laughs> the weather. They hated the food. It almost broke the band up. That's funny. <laughs> and, and it kind of seeps into the album's like tenor of the song sure like we fucking hate it here and we hate each other let's go let's get this wrapped up yeah i've i've been to scotland around the holidays that is a cold that seeps into you that's yeah. different i mean it's not temperature wise that cold but it's just this dank <laughs> you just absorb like a sponge <laughs> orange crush not a fan of the song but for some reason i like the chorus I don't know. I like that chorus. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. Another coolest four seconds I had was the line, you know, I believe in what you do. I believe in watching you. The vocals from Turn You Inside Out. I always thought that the way he sings that is kind of cool. I think it's I think it's Mills doing the vocals there. All right, Sisters of Mercy. Yeah, man, I really enjoyed this uh, because I have to be honest with you, I can't. I think I was stopped by like what what where you started off with REM. It's like oh REM, aren't they kind of like preachy? And didn't I remember not liking them a whole lot? And and I just and I'm like. And I went back and I'm like, no, 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 no. That was all public persona bullshit that Stipe was kind of like giving you a master class on how to deal with the media and protect his own personality, but very much like Corgan did. And that's kind of what his persona through the 80s and the 90s was kind of that. It's like, I don't want to be part of your mainstream. Right. I'm a musician. I'm an artist, really. He's not even sure. Really, he wouldn't call himself a musician. I'm an artist and this is my art. And I kind of, everybody was like, well, what, what the big babies? He's, he's loved by millions and he sells millions of albums and you can't, uh, you can't bother us to give us a little bit of your time. I don't think that was it with him. And so I forgive him all of that. And I go back in this and I'm like, no, 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 that's REM was really big in my, like, like, again, I go back to, we had the Miller Lite and we drank our full of Miller Lite bands. Right. REM was like that. Oh, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm alone here. I'm going to sneak one, you know, Manhattan for myself. Right. It was your, it was your midday band. Right? Yeah, was, exactly. You're hanging by yourself. You're, you're right. You know, you're, you're doing something, perhaps playing video games or exactly I don't know, no, sweeping just, a floor, just <laughs> yearning at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, you're absolutely right. Like the Miller Lite bands were for your mates, and when you went out, and then that's like you would never put on like you no, know, <laughs> God no. Hey guys, you <laughs> know, but but that that. Right. Tiny happy people. <laughs> See this body rolling out of a. <laughs> At highway speed. Yeah, so I really liked them, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely seek them out more. When I cruised their catalog, I stumbled on their song, Imitation of Life, which is from their 2001 album, Reveal. Come on, come on, no one can see me I totally forgot about it. 
I really like this song. So I, I threw that on my playlist, and uh, along with, I'm probably going to add a couple more that we've you know been talking about here. But but I I, I enjoyed it. A couple notable covers. REM covered John Lennon's Number Nine Dream in 2007 for Amnesty International's efforts to raise money for Darfur. Music touching my soul. And also after the 2010 Haitian earthquake, a group called Helping Haiti covered Everybody Hurts. Similar efforts to what you saw for Famine in Africa and Farm Aid. Uh, it was a group of about 25 singers, folks like Kylie Minogue and Rod Stewart, and also John Bon Jovi. And I'm very happy to report that this song was the first time John Bon Jovi reached number one on the UK singles chart. Get out of here. <laughs> now, really? that's the note I saw. Does that mean that Bon Jovi as a band hadn't reached it? I don't know. Let me tell you something right now. You name the time, you name the place. We're doing John Bon Jovi. Oh, God. Uh, Just name it. You, you, you all have, that have listened to our entire catalog of episodes, you know my opinions on John Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> all right, who's the MVP here? That's a good question. If you look at the writing of this music, all four of them are credited with writing every song. And having been in a band that wrote original music... The songs that I am credited with, I am credited with the other guys that wrote it. And that's because we all wrote the songs. Sure. And you don't do that if you've got one piece that is not contributing. So I fully believe that these guys all contributed yeah. to this music. Have to also look at like their instrumental talents as well. And I think one person rises above the other three, and that's Mike Mills. Mm-hmm. He's not super flashy, but he adds a lot of texture and he can go with the, the repeating, you know, 16th note where it fits. And then he swings it into a, a run up and a run down or, or there's a couple songs on here that have some some good slap pop. In fact, I think the the end of Finest Work Song... has a lot of slapping and popping in it. And that's just kind of indicative of, of his talents. And then you also have him throwing vocals over the top. So I'm I'm giving it the to... The bassist! Yes. I'm giving wow, it to... Tim and Getty Lee. I'm giving it to the bassist. <laughs> so I think the MVP of this band is their use of weirdness as a superpower. They're just weird. Yeah. They're weird guys. And that and they're like... They, let, they just leaned into it. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, with lyrics... Eh. Maybe they make sense. Maybe they don't. Who cares? Right. The music is really good, and it will carry the the, the weirdo mu- the, the weirdo lyrics. Sure. If that's if that's what it is. So I think that's just like his like the leaning into weirdness as like this is not a detriment to us. This is us. This is us. Yeah. This is yeah. what we are. How do you rank these guys? What do you give them for a catalog? I mean, I give them a above average for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I'm straight yep. three and eight, three point five across the board. Across the board on all of them. I gave them a four for catalog. I thought they showed some diversity. On their talent, I gave them a 3.2. They knew enough not to overstep their abilities. Yep. And they let the simplicity of the music shine through. Yeah, it doesn't seem like these guys have super big egos. Right, right. Like we're, we're more than what we are. We're not. For their image, I gave them a 2. Mm. You know, the band had their own sound and Stipe was a unique cat. But 
I never said I wanted to be R.E.M. Right. You know, I never wanted to be in that band. Well, I think it just goes to the, like, they didn't want an image manager. They sure. Didn't, they didn't want to be in part of it. They no. Didn't, they didn't want to be in, in that universe. And, you know, maybe they managed their own PR or whatever. And, yeah. you know, if they did, good on you. Um, and it just wasn't in their their no. their, their, their viewpoint. No, they don't it wasn't care. their DNA. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay, that wraps up another episode. Oh, wait, we're not going to do the whole Steve Perry replacement question? <laughs> I had that on here, actually. <laughs> we blow your mind. Imagine Steve Perry singing these songs. <laughs> I'd be all for it. I think it'd be a cool thing to hear. Fuck you. <laughs> if you're listening to us on YouTube, please check out standard podcast outlets. There's a lot more content out there. Send us your requests. Jay Sekirka from New Jersey was the last guy that requested REM. So, hey, if you enjoyed the show, feel it's worth it, we'd appreciate it if you shared it on your social media. Flood the request for Bon Jovi. <laughs> and if you really want us to do Bon Jovi, I will let the audience speak towards this. How's that? Power, there you power go. to the people. You can tweet us if you're one of our three Twitter followers. <laughs> Nick, Nick is managing our Twitter, and boy, is he busy. There's a lot of content there. A lot of stuff going on in my world. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, folks.